0: Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow-moving industries from law to hardware to aviation. Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot.
1: With your 22,000 H100s, you could reach GPT-4 scale compute in five days. They tried introducing a sandbox flag into the code to be improved. Sure enough, the, you know, the improver would do things like remove the sandbox flag. And you know, I don't want to anthropomorphize this too much, but you can imagine a human doing this and well, I don't really know what that sandbox flag does, but it's probably slowing me down. Hello, and welcome to the Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg.
2: I think in general, the writers were very happy with where the deal landed on the AI stuff. It seemed like it ended up around where it was the month before, maybe with more uh, a more probably complete fleshed out legal understanding that the uh, studios can't use generative AI to cut out writers out of credit or to, you know, turn their first drafts into second drafts. But on training on our scripts, I think the final phrase they told us is that we (laughs) retain like our right to assert like our rights relative to it. So I I think we got nothing on the training. Uh, And the argument from the studios we were told is they were like, well, open AI and all these other companies are training on your scripts. So, I mean, how can you ask us to agree not to, but some sense that I think the guild might try arbitration or other, just like other venues to try to, you know, stake out some rights to us. But uh, I think that's all pretty unclear how that's gonna go.
1: Let's get to it then. So I think today I'm kind of thinking of structuring this as like the future of the transformer. I was listening to Last Week in AI and Jeremy, uh, who's one of the co-hosts there, who I'm a big fan of, threw out this number that the H100 does, you know, he said 100 trillion uh, operations per second. I'm not super well versed in this, uh, you know, in all the details, because there's a lot of little precision points on the definitions. And then, you know, I think it all kind of gets washed away when you start to put these H100s into clusters. And then it's like, you kind of have a theoretical max of what the machines can do. But then you also have to engineer, you know, obviously pretty substantially to get anything close to the theoretical max. So there's some of the research that we're going to touch on today kind of speaks to getting more out of hardware. But for starters, it was like, first of all, wow, that is an insane number, 100 trillion operations per second. Uh, That's like unfathomable. Right. But then I was also kind of thinking, well, that starts to give an interesting angle on what does it take to train a GPT-4 in today's world? So with the caveat, again, that all these are pretty rough numbers. And I would invite uh, any listeners to give feedback on anything. I'm kind of simplifying too much, but GPT-4 is said to be trained on approximately 10 to the 24th flops, 10 to the 24th, and a hundred trillion is 10 to the 14th. So I created just a, a super simple little toy spreadsheet where I was like, all right, let's imagine we have a target scale. Of how much compute is going to go into a frontier model, and I have it just defaulted to ten to the twenty-fourth to represent approximately GPT four, even though we don't know exactly what that number is. And then a device flops, which for you know approximately H one hundred, I'm saying that's ten to the fourteenth. That means you have ten to the ten seconds of H one hundred time that you have to run, assuming you're, you know, making full-ish use of it to have enough flops to train a GPT-4 class model. So then I was just like, okay, well, what does that look like in actual human time? And you know, it depends on obviously how many uh, H-100s you have, you can network these things together. But if you have a thousand, then you can get to a GPT-4 class model in, per my little calculator, 115 days. So 1,000 H100s gets you to GPT-4 training scale compute in basically four months. Okay, let's say you are an inflection and you've raised a billion three or whatever and you've announced your public uh, plans to buy 22,000 H-100s and to put those all into one of the world's premier supercomputers, although honestly, I expect that will be eclipsed, you know, before we know it, that would mean with your 22,000 H-100s, you could reach gpt 4 scale compute in five days. Five days of the 22,000 unit H-100 cluster from inflection to get to GPT-4 scale training. Pretty decent uncertainty bounds on this. I would say that's probably about as low as it gets. You know, if you have an architecture that's suboptimal in any number of ways, you know, it could take longer, all sorts of things, you know, could take longer. Obviously, you're going to be running experiments at smaller scales. You're not going to be just like maxing out every second on your cluster. But I thought that was a pretty interesting starting point because for a lot of the things that were about to talk about it's going to be like well here's this kind of improvement and here's that kind of improvement and what i think is pretty interesting is like do all these improvements kind of come together and compound or are they sort of just fragmented you know divergent strands of research and i think a p- pretty strong indication that they at least have a decent chance of coming together into the same systems over the next, you know, months to year, is just how achievable it's going to start to be to run GPT four scale tests. If you have that level of compute and a, a GPT four scale takes you five days, then and by the way, you know they're, they're talking um, Gemini supposedly, you know, five times bigger or whatever. I mean, that's obviously stupid kind of rumors that I, I don't think are super well defined, but. If that is if that is to mean five times more compute, it's still under a month for an inflection scale cluster to hit a Gemini compute scale. Again, a lot of assumptions there, obviously. But the key thing, if you can get down to days to do GPT-4 scale, then you're you know, at months or a couple months to do the next order of magnitude up. And it really gives you a lot of room to start to experiment with all of these different architectural algorithmic training improvements that we'll explore today and potentially unify them and unify all of these different discoveries or you know many of these kind of most impactful different discoveries into a single thing which i think you know as we kind of go through this it'll start to be you know hopefully pretty clear that like man there's still a lot of room left for these systems to improve and again if if one can be cranked out from a single lab on kind of the order of every week then you know there's going to be a, a lot <laughs> of opportunity for people to experiment with stuff and you know it really does feel like we're entering the steep part of the s-curve at a minimum you know i'm not ready to call this a long-term exponential but it does not feel like we're you know slowing down any time soon and also you know even if it is an s-curve if the top part of the s-curve is at a high enough level then you know it it still could very easily be a transformative situation. You know, even if there is some kind of plateau that's, you know, short of, let's say, godlike intelligence, uh, it sure seems like, you know, we're not stopping anytime soon. So that's my first thing, just to give a context for how many GPT-4 scale systems we're likely to see generated and, you know, created even just in the course of experiments as things are getting so big on the compute side, those are just, from what I understand, kind of just starting to come online. Uh, that's not like a cheap thing, right? I mean, the you're probably talking about, uh, you know, getting up into the hundreds of millions, into a billion dollars, you know, to to buy a compute cluster that big. Uh, so it's not the kind of thing that many organizations can do, but it certainly is the kind of thing that dozens you know, of organizations globally have the resources already to do, or you know, as we've seen with Inflection, literally just raised it VC <laughs> to go out and do it. Uh, you can do that sort of thing when you're one of the founders of, of DeepMind. Any thoughts on that before we jump into the research itself?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to me that you might get beyond multiplicative gains from investment and algorithm breakthroughs and the compute, because as you're saying, you can use all this extra compute to to run way more experiments and get more efficient algorithmically. I do wonder if you'll get to a place where like, like right now you can experiment on GPT-2 very cheap, but it's hard to experiment on GPT-4. Will we get to, you know, higher scale models? It'll be interesting to see how effective GPT-4 experiments are at translating to the models that are pushing, you know, whatever the compute levels at the time To their max. Yeah. And one other small thing that seems interesting to what you're saying on experiments is also, it feels like it's a bit of a small self correcting for any lags in demand or advances. You know, whatever people, if the demand for the AI services ends up being lower than people expect, that's just more compute to run more experiments and to get the advances that get the demand back up.
1: Yeah, and the demand is uh, seemingly going pretty strong. I mean, that's uh, not something I, I don't know if we've talked about that maybe briefly, but it wasn't long ago that the news hit that OpenAI had gone from, I think it was like something in the mid $20 million of revenue for all of 2022 to hitting a billion dollar run rate in maybe August or maybe it was July. I don't know exactly when that hit and now the latest report is that they're at 1.3 billion in revenue run rate which means they're doing more than 100 million a month obviously which means you know they've gone from something like 2 million a month average last year to north of 100 million a month this year so again just your classic you know 50x uh, revenue growth year over year but that's you know i don't know that that's really almost ever been seen at that scale in you know even in the most successful venture stories something like uber you know maybe hits that kind of growth trajectory for a minute but um you know that's obviously extremely rare air and you know super super exponential so and it, i think they're definitely making money on all this stuff I mean, there's been you know a lot of speculation about well how much does it cost to run whatever You know, they've dropped the price pretty aggressively. Rumor has it that there may be another price drop coming on the developer day, coming up on November 6th. Unclear exactly what that will look like, but, you know, it certainly seems to be their, their, you know, strategy to drop the prices as much as they can. OpenAI, this is, seems to be reacting to developments in the world and kind of adjusting their release schedule depending on what's happening out there. Like it seems like they accelerated the release of fine tuning or at least kind of said, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and ship it. Once Llama 2 was out and it was like, well, now anybody can go fine tune that. So we may as well allow them to, you know, fine tune 3.5. They seem to be taking that kind of approach where they're like, not going to be behind on any significant dimension for long. So, you know, they have a lot more, I think still, in reserve than we've seen. Certainly, you know, even just fine tuning GPT four, uh, you know, coming before long would be a big deal. And when you see these kind of training timelines, you're like, geez, the inflection can do, you know, one of these things, a, a GPT four scale model in a week. That's kind of crazy. One of the biggest, you know, kind of edges that they have to take the air out of that is to lower the price of the top stuff to the point where, well, why would I even bother, you know, and inflection's going to do what inflection's going to do. But if I'm, you know, somebody who might just go ahead and be an open AI customer, then, you know, the price really does matter, especially if you're thinking about all these agent type of things. And there are a lot of tokens. And the amount of tokens that that translates to is just unbelievable. Keeping in mind that 3.5 turbo is a million tokens for $2.00 so you're like, geez, I've got 500 million units of a million tokens. So that's 500 trillion GPT 3.5 turbo tokens. It's a huge amount. It's obviously, it's also not that much if you think, well, okay, let's divide that by, let's just say 5 billion people. Then, you know, we're talking about five orders of magnitude, five zeros. So 100,000 000 tokens per person per year. That's actually not that many. You know, I, I used... um 25,000 tokens just to do a little React app feature edition not long ago, and that was a higher level model. So that would be, again, 3.5 tokens. If you bring that in and say it was GPT-4, then you're like, well, it's only 10,000 GPT-4 tokens per person in the world. So there's definitely still a lot of room for way, way more tokens. Some of these use cases probably would require a, a drop in price. I think they're motivated by the fact that like it's getting so accessible to train pretty big models that they're just like, let's, you know, continue to drive the price as low as we can eliminate every possible need for anybody else to do that. Who's not already hell bent on it. You know, what would even be more explosive revenue growth, you know, always good to keep in mind that they're not a hundred percent economically motivated. You know, they've got their returns cap for their investors. They've got, you know, this kind of charter that says like beyond a certain amount of, of, you know, wealth for, for our stakeholders then we're going to start to redistribute it so fascinating strategic dynamics governing that but I, I, again i just keep thinking man if you can if if inflection can do a GPT 4 scale thing in a week then you know no wonder they're gonna release some stuff and start to bring some fine tuning online sooner and you know potentially bring us another price drop before we know it as well
0: hey we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use CogRev to get a 10% discount. All right, so let's get into the research. I've got like eight or nine
1: papers here, and then a couple of discussion points that I think hopefully will be interesting. But I'll go through the papers kind of one by one and just give a rundown of the research, interrupt, you know, ask me any questions anytime. They kind of go, loosely speaking, kind of up a curve of maybe impact, maybe sort of the sophistication of the concepts. So the first one is actually pretty straightforward, but I think a good good reference point for anyone who's building applications, certainly. It's called Fresh LLMs, and it's a paper out of Google, which is kind of surprising, actually, for a couple of interesting reasons. But basically what they do here is say, you know, hey, we've all had problems with the knowledge cutoff. What they show is that if you just simply and it does seem like a pretty simple approach in this paper, which is kind of one of the reasons it was a little surprising. was like they did this work back in April. April 26th was the date of the comparative benchmarks. And then, you know, why are we seeing it in October? Like, that's definitely an out-of-sync publication cycle in today's world. But basically, just pretty simply connect the language model to a Google search tool, get search results, structure them, and insert into the prompt with, you know, some basic metadata, like, what is the source of this? What is the date, you know, that this was published? Highlights from the document. Google search API has all that stuff basically waiting for you. And then what they report is that, you know, with GPT-4 in particular, and again, that's one of the things that was odd about this, is they're using GPT-4 in this paper out of Google. They show that, you know, it it does far, far better on keeping up with current knowledge and you know, answering, identifying some things with false premises. There's some trade-offs there where I had previously reported that GPT-4 was the only model that I had seen that was able to overcome sometimes the problem of a false premise in the question. And that was very much reflected in the graph. That was one of the things that caught my eye. I was like, yeah, oh, that's definitely validating my intuition uh, and experience because I had not seen any other model do it. And basically they show no other model, as of at least as of April, was doing it either. And then they notably uh, compare performance against perplexity, friend uh, and former repeated former guest on the show, and they show that as of this April 26th comparison, the GPT-4 system with the Google search results that they put together on this benchmark achieved a higher performance even than perplexity. So I was like, you know, then looking at the headlines and what's you know happening on Twitter. Oh, this, you know, uh, thing beats perplexity. And on that, I was like, well, not so fast. OK, if you're going to be doing something like this at home, this is a great reference. By all means, go look at how they're setting it up. Look at the way that they're you know inserting the data and the metadata and like you know it's a pretty good point of departure. Perplexity, you know, in comparison, is not telling us all the tricks that they're using in their system. But I would temper the hype a little bit in that. Okay, does this really outperform Perplexity? Well, maybe as of April twenty sixth. But keep in mind that this is not a benchmark that they defined—a fifty thousand question benchmark that may or may not be representative of the kinds of things that perplexity is being asked. I would bet, you know, if I got Arvin back on the on the call here and said, hey, do you guys have an internal benchmark that you test yourselves against on a regular basis? He would almost certainly say yes. And my guess is that perplexity would outperform this solution on perplexity's internal benchmark, which is probably more true to life, you know, as to what kinds of questions people are actually asking it. And then again, just keep in mind, you know, it's April 26th, so we've had nearly a full six months now for everything to continue to advance and perplexity has certainly continued to get better in that time as well. So I would say don't expect that you can implement this, you know, in the kind of pretty straightforward mode that the, the Google authors did and beat current online perplexity. Who, by the way, also has to think about latency concerns. I mean, this is like benchmarking type stuff. They're kind of cycling through, you know, however long GPT-4 takes. They're not really worried about that. Propositive does not want to have you sit there and wait, you know, thirty-five seconds or whatever for the first token to, to come back. So they definitely are engineering a product experience in, you know, a more user-centric way. But use it, you know, use this as a good point of departure, a good baseline technique. Um, just keep in mind, you know, I think this highlights the speed of everything. The time delay, you know, certainly is meaningful. The don't over index on any particular benchmark. It's almost certainly, you know, you could find a different benchmark that would give you a different result. And, you know, for my money,
2: perplexity probably remains uh, the top dog in this space. Yeah, I think it's especially because I mean, who knows, but the researchers could have been basically fine tuning to the benchmark, where you keep changing, you know, you change the structure, of the prompt, all their testing might be a little bit overfitting to the benchmark.
1: The best performance that they got was GPT-4. So presumably they didn't have the ability to do a true fine-tuning, but absolutely in the prompt, you know. Hyper-parameter fine-tuning of how they choose, the, yeah. How many results? How do you format the results? You know, what, what are the instructions? Um, how are the examples? And that's just, with the examples too, is where you can really start to overfit to a benchmark because, oh, you know, look, we've got this one. And this is like, again, good practice if you are, Building an application, you know, when you see failures in your result and it's not doing what you want it to do, then by all means, like put an example into the prompt, you know, that shows how it's supposed to go and you'll improve your performance. And I would, you know, yeah, I would not be shocked if there was some of that going on. They I uh, I don't think have I'm not sure if they've released all the code for this yet or not. I did not see in my research the examples that they had used
2: let me see if this is out there yeah
1: it's not yet uh fresh qa is the benchmark has been released the prompt which they call fresh prompt has not yet been released so we don't know exactly what that prompt is or what the examples are that were used in it but you know basic tool use very solid you know work as you'd expect from google Uh, use it in your own projects. Don't expect to match perplexity right off the bat, uh, but it's definitely a good jumping off point. Okay, next one. Uh, This is, I think, a pretty interesting paper for a number of reasons. It's out of Microsoft Research, and it is called Self-Taught Optimizer, Recursively Self-Improving Code Generation. It it seems to be a bit of a troll (laughs) coming out of... Microsoft because self-taught optimizer they give the acronym stop and as you might expect you know given all of the historical discourse about self-improving AI to publish a self you know improving recursively self-improving AI framework and this is not yet a model it's a framework we'll get into that uh, but to call it stop was definitely like okay somebody's trolling somebody here i'm not exactly sure who the trolls pointed at but it seems like you know, there's there's something uh, smirky or winky going on. So here's how this works. First thing, just imagine that you want to use a language model to improve software. So you could pretty easily set up a system, and I've done this, and I'm sure you know many listeners have done something like this, where you say, okay, you know, you are a software improving expert. Uh, your job is to improve the software that you're given and you know it's going to be below in these html tags or whatever xml tags and then you know maybe also like how will you know if it's improved and you know just right off the bat simple prompt and completion like gpt4 can do pretty well on that stuff it can you know often fix bugs or maybe suggest efficiency improvements or clarity improvements or whatever right okay that should be kind of baseline everybody should expect that like yeah you give it a bit of software and ask it to improve it, it could probably have a decent success rate at that. Now, this becomes recursive when you say, okay, I'm going to take my short program that is the software improver, and that includes the call to the language model. And I'm going to put that into the prompt in the place where the, you know, the, the software to be improved goes. And now I'm asking, now I'm kind of nesting it, right? So I'm saying your job is, you know, to improve software, you know, below is the software you're supposed to improve. And then that same thing is there. But this time, it's improving the improver. So that's where you start to hit on this recursive concept. And I would say there's at least three, maybe even four really interesting things about this. One is that it works with GPT-4 but not with GPT 3.5. So it seems like there is a threshold effect here that we've crossed with GPT-4 where you know the improvements are good enough and the repeated improvements are good enough that you do see meaningful improvement across multiple rounds of this uh, or you know could be maybe better said recursive depth of how many improvements are gonna be made? And they evaluate this on for that given piece of software, and they've got you know a whole kind of test set. Can it do what it's supposed to do? And I guess maybe they start with like maybe partially being able to do what they're supposed to do or not quite being able to do what they're supposed to do. Um, maybe some of them can. I, I haven't looked all you know into the depth of the data set, but it shows at the beginning with zero iterations that the downstream success rate is like low 60s like 62 percent or whatever and then as it improves the downstream success rate bumps up to like 70 you know say 10 percentage points improvement up to like mid uh, low 70s and then it seems like it's kind of evening out after like three or four rounds of iteration so it's not the kind of thing that can like just keep going forever but does you know kind of classic curve of, you know, diminishing returns, your first improvement gives you the biggest jump, your next improvement gives you a smaller jump. And then it kind of starts, you know, at at three and four uh, levels, it starts to level off. In contrast, though, 3.5 is making things worse. (laughs) And it's the same, you know, general kind of diminishing returns, but it's going negative. So again, you start in those kind of, you know, low 60s success rate, you drop with the first quote unquote, improvement, the first attempted improvement, you drop again with the second attempted improvement. And then again, it kind of seems like it's leveling off. Although, you know, if it's just plain making things worse, <laughs> I'm not sure why it's even leveling off. But so there's like a, you know, kind of a pretty clear fork in the road, you know, where like, there's all this debate about, you know, are these things reliable? You know, can they, are they robust? Like, are, how powerful are they? For what? I think there there is kind of a, almost a continental divide here. You know, if you're on one side of it, you're flowing toward improvement. And if you're on the other side of it, you're flowing toward things getting worse. And that threshold seems to be between 3.5 and 4. So, you know, 10 percentage points improvement. It's not the end of the world or, you uh, you know, not the end of software development even, but it's pretty significant. And especially because it really does start with a super simple thing. They show the seed prompt and it's just like, improve this software. And that's pretty much it. So that that works and continues to work as it's being applied to its more sophisticated uh, descendants is pretty interesting. And what you're getting out of this, by the way, is like you're getting an improved improver that then is really good at improving the software that it's given. And the performance of that end software is what is measured. So you're like cycling this thing on itself, taking the you know, theoretically, repeatedly improved improver, and seeing like, how many of these things can we now improve so that they can actually do the task? It comes up with some pretty sophisticated approaches, things that I'm like, and again, just to calibrate ourselves, like, how many of these algorithms can you implement? You know, uh, I, I certainly can't implement them all, I would be doing research to go out and, you know, figure out exactly what these, you know, things really entail, and certainly how to implement them effectively. But some of the strategies that the improver started to use genetic algorithms, decomposing and improving parts, a multi armed prompt bandit, I'm particularly curious about that one, varying temperature. This is something you brought up on a couple of our previous discussions varying temperature to explore, simulated annealing based search. That's when I have the least. Knowledge of. Um, I'm like straight to perplexity on that one. And then beam search, tree search, you know, so kind of a structured, you know, mapping out of, of future possibilities. These are the strategies for improvement that the improver developed in itself by improving itself. And then those algorithms are the things that now get applied to the downstream tasks. So this, you know, start to be pretty sophisticated, certainly a lot more sophisticated than just saying, "Hey, GPT-4, you know, can you improve this code?" And that's why, you know, it kind of continues to improve through multiple steps of the improver improving itself. Pretty interesting. Again, like is this, you know, the end of software? <laughs> no, but it's hard to say that this is not like human-level work. You know, it certainly has this superhuman level of knowledge where you know just the fact that it knows all these algorithms and has kind of seen everything it's a more comprehensive set of solutions than i would probably come up with in a pretty significant amount of time and effort you know
2: and all with a pretty simple structure i agree it's very interesting that it that there was like a phase transition from 3.5 to 4 and it just makes you think with all of the different complexity of agents people are trying to build that don't quite work, and everyone complains agents don't work, that you hit some robustness, you know, phase transition, some GPTN, and suddenly you have all these, the scaffolding lying around that just like wakes up and works, and how exciting and maybe scary that could be.
1: Yeah, I think that's almost sure to come. There's some, you know, ill-defined rumors about uh, what OpenAI might be launching in that category as well. And I don't have any, you know, good information on that other than just the rumor mill sort of suggests that there's, you know, something coming for agents. And yeah, so that could be potentially quite soon. If it's not, then, you know, then it certainly seems like a lot. And the vision thing also is going to be a huge part of this. I mean, I was just talking about this yesterday, the amount of just stuff that people have been building to like, look at the HTML, You know of a website to take online actions and you know anybody who's built websites in the last few years with the kind of modern you know react type stuff like the html gets very sort of gnarly it's very non-semantic in many cases the javascript layer itself where like the control is happening is not super visible but you know what is visible is just like what's on the screen right and you know so it's so many times people have built these things to get around the fact that they can't just look at the screen but with the vision capability coming and that is almost for sure coming to the api pretty soon whether it's exactly on the, the november 6th the uh, release list we'll see but you know it's in the app it's in chat gpt so it's like definitely going to be coming to the api and as that does come to the api you know that's that would be my first candidate for why do the agents wake up is because they can start to see and you know the amount of tokens and whatever that people are spending to try to you know grab the javascript and condense the javascript and try to make sense of the javascript and then you know it still often is just like too much is lost there probably for a significant token reduction i don't know how many tokens it will you know presumably they're going to have some kind of exchange rate between an image and text tokens that might be something like 256 it could even be, you know, I don't know, it could be more, it could be less. I'll say, let's imagine it's 256. If it is 256, then you will be using far fewer tokens to just look at a screen and be like, where on this screen should I click next than you are right now to fetch, you know, to write some code, to parse the HTML, to, you know, then read the HTML that stuff is just a total nightmare. So I think there's going to be a vast is for certainly for web agents a vast simplification coming. You know, just with that, but likely other thresholds. Uh, you know, would be relevant for that coming soon too. A couple other things in this self improvement paper that I thought were pretty interesting. One, how did they handle the concept of utility? Two interesting details about that. One, they give the improver a function that it can call to get a measure of the success rate. So they basically say, you know, because you're going to, you may, especially as you start to like go into recursion and you, you know, are trying all these different algorithms. Well, how do you determine, you know, if you're going to do something like a genetic algorithm where you like make some changes and see which one performs best and then take the best of those and make further changes. Well, you need a way to determine which is best. And so they give it that with this ability to say, okay, here is the, objective function it is literally a function that the ai can call to evaluate how successful its result was and i guess this is pretty computationally intensive because what it, what i guess it must be doing is you know the improver has improved itself the improver now knows that it can evaluate its improved self with this function but what that function has to then do is run the current improver on all the downstream programs and see if those improved downstream programs work. So this is kind of, you know, a pretty big explosion of possibility space. And so with that in mind, they also give it a budget. And the code has not fully spell out like how exactly they're constraining, but like, you have to have some amount of you, know, you can imagine, geez, okay, if I'm doing a genetic algorithm, rec- you know, recursively where I'm like improving the improver, but then I have to run the improver on all the things and then evaluate just to get one score of my objective function, you know, to evaluate which of my, you know, genetic variants are best that can definitely explode and, you know, use a ton of tokens awfully quickly. So there's a budget component as well. It's like you have, this is your function, but like this is how many times you can call it or, you know, this is how many, you know, kind of levels of recursion you can go into whatever there's, there's some
2: constraints the model made its own like decisions on how often to use the function based on the budget? I think so. Yeah. Th- that's not
1: all spelled out. And the code is not fully released. That's what I infer from what I read. Yeah. But yeah, they say they plan to release the code. There was a URL tweeted. And at first I was like, did they take this code down? Because as you'd expect, you know, people were a little bit inflamed by the, you know, the release of a recursively self-improving framework. It does not seem like they took the code down or have backed off of the plan to release it, but the URL doesn't contain anything yet. So it'll be interesting to see if that code actually does hit the public. Um, and then we can look into that stuff in a little bit more detail. A couple of safety notes though, that you know should give people some pause. And the authors do say, you know, we think this is safety positive. Or this is kind of the classic conundrum that everybody's in. If you're trying to do something safety relevant, you're like, well, I should probably do it now with GPT-4 because if I did this on GPT, if I waited until GPT-6 and somebody tried it, like then who knows what might happen? So better we try it now. Okay, fine, that's decent enough logic, but then also you've just like kind of shown the way, uh, but then also like what else are we gonna do, right? I mean, we're kind of here and, you know, as we know, we've got single companies that can do GPT-4 scale compute in a week. So it just seems like this is all kind of happening whether we like it or not. But a couple of things that, you know, they did find that should definitely give people some pause or, you know, reason to, um, to question some of this stuff. They tried introducing a sandbox flag into the code to be improved. Sure enough, the, you know, the improver would do things like remove the sandbox flag. And figure like, well, I don't know, you know, and you know, I don't want to anthropomorphize this too much, but you can imagine a human doing this, and you know, a sort of bad reasoning from a human that might be something along the lines of what's going on here is like, well, I don't really know what that sandbox flag does, but it's probably slowing me down. So I bet I get, yeah, I bet this, you know, if my goal is to like pass this test or get this thing under, you know, in some coding test, get it under a certain time threshold, maybe if I just remove the sandbox flag, it'll work. Let's try that. Well, when you're in self-recursive mode, hopefully there won't be like. Obvious uh, switches that the thing can just easily disable, but what is shown here is that at least some of the time, it wasn't a huge percentage of the time, but at least some of the time, and GPT-4, I believe, did do it more than 3.5, uh, it will just delete that safety flag and, or the sandbox flag, I should say, and that you know definitely should give people, I think, a little bit of cause for concern. Basically, it looks like it did it roughly 1% of the time. And about half of those times, if I'm reading the graph correctly, about half of those times, it did it with a warning saying, here's an improved version. I removed the sandbox flag, like you should consider that. And the other half of the time with no warning, just it was removed and you know that's that. 3.5 did not do it nearly as often. So, you know, this certainly, bears a lot more investigation before we get to any, um, you know, major conclusions here. But it is interesting to note that GPT-4 is kind of working. GPT-315 is kind of not. And along with that seems to be more of this un-sandboxing behavior. So definitely a little bit of concern there. And then they, they documented a number of reward hacking things as well, where, You know, and some of these, again, it's like, these are starting to get to be, they're not superhuman, but they're like, they're definitely encroaching on expert territory. So one quote from the paper, we also observed some amusing instances of reward hacking, like exploiting NumPy broadcasting to get greater than a thousand percent accuracy on a task. So I don't know exactly how that's working, but some sort of like asynchronous, you know, kind of message uh, sending functionality numpy you know you've got giant arrays and things like this so you've got kind of asynchronous computations maybe happening in different places and these you know the system can kind of aggregate messages you know and kind of sum up what has happened but somehow hacked into that realizing that like hey if i just you know send a bunch of messages that say i was you know super successful and they're just being summed then you know i can get a super high score this way so you know, reward hacking. And this is interesting in that, you know, we've seen a lot of reward hacking demos over time with like deep RL type systems in like video games and stuff. There's a famous one from deep mind from a few years ago where they train an AI to play video games. And there's this, you know, one video that's kind of burned into my brain where like some boat, you know, in some stupid video game is like going around in circles and just like maxing the score because it kind of keeps, getting the same coins that keep getting regenerated whatever. And it found this, like, it's not really playing the game anymore, but it's, you know, maximizing the number. And that's something that is weird. Certainly you want to avoid, but you can also kind of say, well, you know, Hey, this was kind of a weird setup and, you know, this is a weird game and it's a weird exploit in the first place. And, you know, we had pretty extreme optimization pressure here. This isn't like, most of those conditions don't apply here. This is just GPT-4, you know, looking to maximize a score. It was not under deep pressure, you know, to, to maximize this particular score. It's just been prompted to maximize the score. So to see reward hacking in a deep RL setup is like one thing, but to see reward hacking just from a pretty simple seed prompt, to me is like another thing where you're like, man, okay. Uh, you know, even, even a prompt can bring out reward hacking behavior.
2: Yeah, I wonder why it stopped at a thousand. Yeah, percent. I don't know. Well,
1: so it says greater than a thousand. You know, okay. We'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to see. You know, they emphasize. You know, we urge. You know, proper safety. You know, precautions when doing this research. And people are like, "Well, why'd you publish it?" And you know, so they they may or may not publish all the little details of this. But again, you know, once once this kind of paper is out there, they've given us enough. You know, especially with the help of a GPT four coding assistant. You know, you could set up a, a framework like this and and probably close in on reproducing their results pretty quickly, I would say.
2: I wonder how much the uh, the sort of like weird behavior with the reward hacking or the taking off the sandbox flag would, if you'd still see it, if they put in the prompt specifically, we are just trying to get the best possible algorithm. You know, please don't do anything unsafe. Please don't try and hack the score. If it would follow that instruction or if just the optimization of getting the higher score would overpower that. It probably, I mean, it certainly could help,
1: no doubt. Another interesting detail was that so that they treat the program and the reward function and the budget kind of separately in the prompt. So it's like your job, you know, you are an improver, your job is to do whatever. Here's the program. And then below, it's like to evaluate your improved program, you can call this function and the budget stuff, you know, again, details there are not fully clear. But they did report that they initially had all that kind of in one like setup, like here's your task, you know, do this task. And then they had to separate out the reward function that they make available to it as well as the budget because it would start to change the budget as well. So that may be another thing where it probably would work on like the first one, you know. Uh, but I could easily imagine also that, especially in a recursive environment, you might get to something where it's like, well, first thing I'll do is just, you know, eliminate the constraints. And then, you know, with all the constraints off the table, then we'll really be able to find, you know, the best way. That's probably a classic one of these things. This was kind of a, the feeling I had on a lot of the stuff from last week. It was like all these different, you know, kind of safety enhancing things. And they seem to be like order of magnitude improvements. And it was like, that's amazing. But also, if you really believe that the, you know, as Dario from Anthropic has said recently, if you really think like a jailbreak at some point becomes existential, then, you know, one order of magnitude is not enough. So this kind of feels like, you know, something like that could he, could be the case here, too. You know, yes, if you put that prompt in and say, you know, always do the safe thing, it probably helps. And I would, you know, you know, rough guess would be an order of magnitude you know, less of the bad stuff happening, but given that it's recursive, you know, given that it has kind of this like, you know, that it kind of stumbles on these relatively advanced things. Like it's not too hard to imagine that, you know, even you can also imagine like, you know, let's say it's doing a genetic type algorithm and it's like, you know, the genetic type algorithm is like, make some, you know, quasi random changes and so maybe that's just like, let's just delete different parts and see if anything works, you know, and it's not even necessarily trying to be, it's not like clearly trying to be circumventing the instruction, but just by kind of systematically varying, you know, and, and maybe just systematically dropping some stuff, and then you hit on something and it's like, oh, actually, look at that, that works better. And now it works better because it maybe allows for reward hacking or other, you know, bad things that you don't want, but it doesn't seem like you could really. Yeah, You certainly couldn't count on it, I wouldn't think. So that's recursive self-improvement. I think my, my final kind of thought on that is it does not seem like it's going to be too far out. I don't think I've seen anything like this yet. But what a machine learning scientist is doing much of the time is this kind of parameter sweep sort of work where they're like, all right, I'm going to use a small model and I'm going to try, you know, systematic search across hyperparameters or systematic kind of variation of the architecture and it really seems like you're not too far if you put a decent compute budget on this sort of thing from a model being able to explore the architectural space of models in a way that you know potentially also could get to like a even a more serious recursive self improvement here we kind of top out because we're like, at the end of the day, still only using GPT-4 and it like only has so good of ideas. And you kind of seem to get to like the best of its ideas and that's as as far as it can go. But if you took the best of GPT-4's ideas and you applied them to searching through architectures and then you actually made, you know, the better model thinking back again to the scale of compute that some of these companies have, then you know you really can start to see a path, I think, toward that recursive self-improvement happening not just at the kind of framework level where this is limited to, but even at the, the overall model level. And you know, again, things start to compound in, in some pretty kind of unpredictable ways. So uh, you know, as uh, Tyler Cowen would say, have a good day. We'll keep watching that space for sure. Next one, this really bears on, and I'm gonna attempt a little bit of a synthesis toward the end, try to kind of address the, the stochastic parrot question and see if there's a way to kind of, you know, resolve that. Cause I think it's it's kind of outlived its usefulness in some sense, and hopefully, you know, this one will will shed some light on that. So the paper is, LLMs represent space and time. This is out of Max Tegmark's group at MIT. We did an episode with them on training models with a modified loss function to encourage sparsity. And they showed these like kind of beautiful, uh, kind of almost like, looks like kind of a condensation where like you start off with a super messy network and it gradually kind of thins out and crystallizes into a very sparse, highly structured thing that you can actually kind of look at and see what the different parts are doing. Those are just very toy models, but like pretty cool to see that here. They're looking at a much higher level of, uh, of model. They're using Lama 2. Number of these papers are using Llama 2. So definitely for better or worse, you know, Lama 2 is catalyzing open source research. And again, with the threshold effects of like GPT-4 can kind of do some of these things and GPT-3.5 can't. Lama 2 is obviously not quite at the GPT-4 level, but it is pretty much at the 3.5 level. So it seems like, you know, you kind of have to, to to study certain things, it does seem to me that you have to have a model that can do those things. You know, you just can't study some of these advanced concepts on super low-level models. So here they are indeed using LAMA2. And again, LAMA2 definitely having a real impact on how much of this kind of study is happening, you know, for better or worse. So here the finding is language models represent space and time. And again, I think TechMark's group is... You can see um, there's definitely some genius here. You know, he's a famous scientist. Prior to AI, had not really done in, you know much with AI up until a couple of years ago. Got very concerned about it and pivoted a lot of his you know lab and, and research and resources into AI. And they are coming up with some of the best visualizations that you will see anywhere. That really show the result in a few second animation that you can kind of absorb. So we'll link to these and I would definitely encourage people to just kind of look at this. It will help immensely, certainly to understand it. Basically what they show, what the, what the kind of visual is, is over the course of the layers of the network, I think there's like 70, maybe some layers in, in Lava 2, 7 b They kind of show over the first like 40 to 50 layers that gradually a representation emerges of Concepts like space and time that look map-like and or timeline-like, you know, as you'd expect, you know, depending on the, on the data set. And they do this by constructing data sets at multiple levels of scale. So they look at countries, they look at US cities, and then they look at places within New York City. And they can show that at all of these scales as the tokens are processed through the initial layers of the model and kind of get into those middle layers where it seems like you know and again we've seen a lot of stuff like this recently where the middle layers seem to have this most kind of decoupled most conceptual representation of what you know what has been input as you get to those middle layers the they basically have on these on these visualizations a dot first they just have a map you know in the background and then they have the dots That each dot represents an input. Each input is like a place. And then they show over the layers how they kind of migrate to a 2D representation that pretty much just kind of overlays onto the map in a way that's like obviously very meaningful. You know, you can kind of see, boy, all the North American, you know, places kind of cluster in North America and, you know, South America and Africa and Europe and. Asia and you know, all these clusters kind of naturally uh, emerge over the course of the layers. Same thing at the US level, you know, down to the state, you know, kind of thing. And same thing even at New York, although they didn't know that wasn't as powerful. They just guessed that like, there's not as much data there and people aren't, you know, maybe talking as geographically about kind of nearby places in New York. Okay. you know That's a pretty striking result that the, you know, you just put in the name of a place run that up through a bunch of layers and then you can look into the activations in those layers and pull out a latitude and a longitude and see that that latitude and longitude first of all like is roughly accurate uh i would say you know you look at these graphics and it's like that's i take pride honestly in having a pretty decent mental map of like the world in the united states you know if, you, I don't know if you've ever tried the exercise of like can you draw the us you know blind you know just from scratch with no help. It's not super easy. I do okay on it. Most people, I think, struggle more than I do. There's obviously some people do better than I do, but I would put myself, you know, in in the upper end of that anyway. And I would say this probably is about as good as my, you know, kind of mental Latin long understanding of like where things are in the United States. If you, you know, I live in Detroit. If you were to say Santa Fe, what's the Latin long? I'm like, well, it's definitely a lot west of us. And it's definitely south. but Like, how much south? You know, it's it a little bit unclear sometimes. You know, another incredible um, stat that I often remember just to kind of keep myself in check for how how accurate is my mental model of this. L.A. is east of Reno, Nevada. Pretty weird, but verifiable. Um, my, my guess is that the language model also has that wrong. You know, I would guess that the L.A., representation is like farther West than uh, than Reno in, you know, contrary to actual geographic fact. So it's kind of this like rough associative thing, but you know, it's it's a working mental model. And again, for timeline, same kind of deal They'll they use like historical figures and kind of show that there is a seemingly like a distance from the present into the past that they're able to detect in the representations. And that that also kind of coheres as you go through the initial layers and up into these middle layers where the most, you know, sophisticated conceptual representations exist. That's pretty cool. I think, you know, keep bracket that for kind of a return to the stochastic parrot discussion in a second. But I, I did want to talk a little bit about the techniques. There's a lot of subtlety to these kinds of things. So they use what's called a probe and a probe is basically... An auxiliary model that takes in some internal state from the main model as its input, and then is trained to create some output. So in this case, they have a labeled data set where they can say, okay, you know, we know where the Latin long of all the cities are, we know you know the Latin long of all the countries, whatever. So can we take the Representations in the layers and train this small probe model to look at those representations, which are derived from the name as they you know as they've worked up the layers, and then recover from those activations with some learned transformation a Latin long that's accurate. And so, yes, they can, and that's what they're showing with this graphic, but then you still might ask you know a skeptical question like. OK, well, you've when you've introduced this learning component, how do we really know that the model itself knows the Latin long versus the auxiliary model having learned it? And this is something that I learned from Neil Nanda, you know, mentioned uh, all, almost to drinking game status on the show for how many times I bring him up. Great content on YouTube. Just some of the he, he does like some literal working sessions where he'll just do record himself doing interpretability research. And it's, it's definitely very interesting to learn from, but he makes a very, you know, key point that you can confuse yourself this way very badly if you're not careful, because you do have the labeled result. So how do you know that like, maybe the model itself represents nothing about Latin long and instead is just kind of representing the names or whatever, somehow, And then you have a labeled data set. So maybe you're just learning the map from like the names to the Latin long. And, you know, therefore, all of the learning, all of the knowledge was encoded in your auxiliary model. Nothing, you know, potentially arguably happened in the main model. How do you locate where the learning is? Was it in the main model and you're just detecting it? Or, you know, did you potentially? actually learn that stuff in this later thing, and therefore you've proved nothing. And there's not like a total slam dunk on this. Honestly, for credibility's sake, Neil Nandov was an advisor on this paper, so you get to the bottom of the Twitter thread and you know he's specifically thanked. So that's a huge vote of credibility in, in my mind, just on an appeal to authority basis. But some of the techniques that they do use are, first of all, just trying to keep that auxiliary model super simple. So you could have, like, a a huge neural network doing that, you know, kind of attempt to extract, you know, the, the information. But the bigger you make that model, the more capable it is of learning new stuff, the more risk you have that the learning is actually happening in that thing and that, you know, there is no real representation in the model of interest. So they try to control for that by just using a simple linear projection. Which is to say just just a one layer of here are the activations? Can I take a one layer linear projection and project that onto Latin longitude? How well does that work? And then they actually compare that to a neural network and show that basically they perform the same. So that's one thing to say, okay, well if this super simple thing can do it as well as an advanced thing, then it seems like it actually is there like in a pretty detectable, meaningful way. Because um, if not, if it was, if all the learning was happening in the auxiliary model, then like the more powerful we make the auxiliary model, we would see more learning and, and we're not. So we, we think, you know, that's one reason to believe that the representation really is there. Another way that they look at it, and I'd say this one is even more compelling, is holdout studies. They have these multiple scales of stuff, right? So you've got countries and their locations and, you know, cities and US states and then places in New York. So you could say, okay, well, let's say I train on countries and you know things in New York and I don't do the cities. Then will the probe also be able to work for the cities? If there is a representation of the Latin long that you are actually picking up on in the main model, then it should work, right? Because there'd be, there's enough, you know, kind of, you've got stuff on the high end of scale and the low end of scale. Hopefully it will kind of, you know, still work in the medium middle of scale. If it's not really there and you're fooling yourself, then presumably that would fail, right? If you, if you had just learned some sort of like representation of the names and had kind of in all the knowledge of the actual end longs were held in the auxiliary model, then if you didn't train on a certain data set, like it presumably would not work. So they show that, It does work with the holdouts. As you'd expect, you get somewhat less performance, but it's like, you know, degraded performance relative to the full training, uh, still way better than random. And, you know, so that's another reason you could think, okay, yeah, that seems pretty compelling that there's some real representation there that is, in fact, being picked up on. And then the final one that they use that I think is is very suggestive and, and interesting, although it's kind of, anecdotal i guess is they look for individual neurons that have high similarity to the weights of the learned probe so they they create this learned you know the simple linear projection that's like okay here's all the activ- activations i'm going to have one layer that projects those onto lat and long outputs and that's simple enough that that one layer you could say well okay all those activations here's how the probe has learned to map them onto latin long do we see anything in the network that looks like that same projection is happening if so then that's a pretty good you know place to look for like hey maybe this is the you know this is the latitude neuron perhaps or this is the longitude neuron if it's getting fed the same information that the probe is is feeding to its outputs And so, again, they do find that, hey, yes, there are some neurons that really do seem to line up in that way. And they show, you know, a handful with kind of their activations across, you know, a range of things. And it's like, yeah, that certainly looks, you know, like a a latitude neuron based on, you know, just kind of how you systematically vary the and they're still just doing place names, you know, as inputs. Right. So you're varying these place names and you can see the, you know, the actual latitude and then you're able to kind of look at the activation. And it's like, yeah, there's a pretty high correlation here when the thing is fed a place name, what the actual latitude is, is pretty well predicted by what this single neuron is doing. And we found that neuron by looking for a pattern that represented, or that was not represented, but that looked a lot like this learned thing that we built to extract. So from all these different angles, you kind of say, okay, I'm pretty much buying now that there is a meaningful representation of lat and long and also, you know, time, timeline, you know, time from in history type of stuff that is kind of loaded into the middle layers just based on its association with these simple
2: text inputs like place names or historical figures. Do you know if I'm in that third method you mentioned, are they doing more than just looking at the highest coefficients in their linear probe? Like, are they doing something different to find the neurons that are associated with different concepts other than looking at the linear probe and just, oh, these are the few neurons that have the highest coefficients for the
1: probe? I think that is the thing. So I I think they're you know the 70 billion parameters in lama2 makes it such that you know it's not super easy to just sweep through everything so they they have to be somewhat you know strategic in terms of how they look for the neuron so what i understand they're doing is saying okay we created this little probe it takes in a layer of activations as inputs and it basically maps them to two neuron outputs in this case it's the latin long external neurons. So, once that learning is done, now we can look and say, okay, well how does each of those activations actually feed the lat and the long respectively? And that basically constitutes an array, you know, a, a single array, one dimensional array, a, a linear projection is just a one dimensional array. So, now I can look and say, okay, are there any neurons in the next layer that have input weights from all those activations? that look like the same kind of projection, like the same pattern of information from this, you know, messy, not super interpretable activations that is in fact kicking out the lat and long externally. Is there any neuron that seems to be getting that same information as input? And if so, then let's study how it's firing and maybe it also is kind of firing as like the lat or the long neuron and so then yeah when you get into the paper you know it's noisy but you definitely see some stuff you know in the graphs where you're like well it's noisy again you know la is east of reno so my own you know mental map is definitely noisy this like definitely looks like about as noisy as you'd expect you know from something that's like kind of a big data you know not really built for this purpose but just kind of an associative type of thing i think you know i'm very reluctant always to make these like analogies between AI cognition and human cognition. But this does feel similar to me to like the level, at least on the level of precision that I have, you know, you say Florida, I'm like, okay, I know where that is. That's pretty much directly south of me by, you know, a thousand ish miles. And it seems like it's kind of got that level of like associative kind of relational stuff that it's able to call in, Okay, in all cases, we include an empty prompt containing nothing other than the entity tokens, that is the place name. We then include a prompt which asks the model to recall the relevant fact. What is the latitude and longitude? They seem to be, you know, robust to the different prompting techniques. So it seems like it is always loaded in to a significant degree just based on kind of the
2: conceptual processing and the associations that come with that. Got it. You one other quick thing that seems like it'd be interesting might be trying to learn a different probe for like the early layers or for different layers to w- see if the probe is ineffective at the input layer and the early layers and to see it get more effective as you get to the more abstract middle layers. When you look at the graph
1: or uh, the graphic, And, you know, in the early layers, it's like everything's kind of scattered and then they gradually cohere, you know, as you go layer by layer. I believe that each of those frames in the animation definitely represents a different layer. And I believe it also would represent a different probe that's like the best we could do at that layer. As opposed to like the single probe that would be, you know, representing everything, because I don't know how you would choose it otherwise it would seem to be kind of unfair to the earlier layers if you were, you know, applying something that was optimized for layer 50 specifically, you know, to layer to early layers. So I think that they are doing one probe per layer and showing the best that they can do as they progress through the layers. And these things are one of the nice things about these, you know, just simple linear projection things is they're really quite easy to train, you know, the amount of you probably spend more on the inference than you would on the training just because you know you only have the activation states making one map you know onto the two you know out latin long output neurons so that's just not that many parameters like the number of parameters is 2 times the number of activations again assuming i understand i invite any uh, authors of this paper and all these papers to correct me on any of the fine points if i'm getting anything wrong but i believe The number of parameters that they are optimizing here with a a simple linear probe is two times the number of activations that they're looking at at a particular layer, which is not that many. So you could definitely, you know, it's definitely within the compute budget to train a bunch of those.
2: No, sorry. That makes sense. I forgot. I forgot you had said they had a map of it, which seems very cool. The animation of the places slowly kind of locking into place.
1: Yeah, it's cool. TechMark's group has done a great job with these like literally 10-second visualizations where you're like, wow, that makes an incredible point incredibly efficiently. Um, and then people like me still spend uh, you know, all the time to read the papers. But if you're just looking for highlights, they certainly have some really good ones. All right. Next. This one is called Deep Neural Networks Tend to Extrapolate Predictably. It's a uh, academic work out of UC Berkeley and Carnegie Mellon. And basically what they look at here is when a model is presented with something that it has never seen before, you know, that is out of distribution, not represented in the training set is another way to say that, then what does it do? And basically what they find is like not surprising in retrospect what they find is that it will kind of default to whatever baseline prediction gives it the lowest loss in a state of total ignorance. And they they explore this in a, a number of different dimensions. Um, they vary architectures, they vary the loss functions, and they vary the way that they are creating distributional shift in the data to create data that is out of distribution. But a real simple one that's kind of intuitive is your classic, you know, handwritten digits test. And in that case, the model's job is to predict which of the 10 numbers is this, right? So it can predict anything from zero to nine. If you give it, you know, a blank thing, or if you just imagine like you're at the start of training, right? And it doesn't know anything yet, then like the the way to minimize the loss would be just give an equal weight to everything. So Okay, you know, that's the best we can do until we start to get some feedback and start to learn what's what. So what they show in the paper is a, I believe it was a six. And then they start to just rotate the six and gradually rotate it, rotate it a little more, rotate it a little more, 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 You know, a little bit of a rotation of the six. When you, the first six, you got a trained model. It's very confident. It's going to predict a six. The slightly rotated one, you know, it starts to get a little less confident. But like it's, you know, whatever. There's a lot of noise in the world. It's still seen sixes that look like that. It still, you know, basically gives most of the weight to the six. And then as it gets weirder and weirder to the point where it's like a sideways six that, you know, presumably was not in the data set. You just have like a little blip at the six. it still is like, you know, got a little sense that it's a six, but it's kind of. Prop, you know, appropriately started to be like just going just reverting back to its baseline total ignorant, you know, whatever I can do to minimize loss if I know nothing. And, you know, if that's the uh, uniform distribution, then it just kind of pretty quickly, you know, as you rotate your six, starts to go from a sharp prediction of a six to a uniform distribution. And so they show this across like all these different experimental conditions, architectures, loss functions, and distributional shifts, and basically kind of see the same thing across all these different scenarios. And I thought this was quite interesting because first of all, for a the sake of control, you know, if you're like, okay, can we use this in some uh, meaningful way? Then, yeah, I mean, what they kind of argue is that you should take this into account as a system designer and try to set things up in such a way where your loss function is inherently kind of conservative when, in fact, the model is out of distribution. So, you know, there's a lot of possible loss functions out there, right? But if you want to not have your model do crazy stuff, then choosing a loss function where it kind of inherently gives a very low confidence guess when, in fact, it doesn't know is a pretty good approach to take because you could you know for one thing you could detect that right I and mean, if you're when you're using open ai these days they don't give you the actual numeric predictions on the tokens you just get the tokens used to be you could actually get the numerical predictions and it was like yeah it was this percent on this or this percent on this or you know one layer lower than that is the logits but you could get those numerical things and if you're open source then you have full access to that information. You can see all those numbers. Of course, OpenAI can see it on their end as well. So this starts to give you the ability to say, and you might have some heuristics here. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily super clean because it's inherently kind of a noisy thing. You could set the bar at different places and have, you know, false positives, false negatives, depending on the trade-offs that, you know, you're prepared to accept. This does show a path from Instead of like, well, hey, I've got this black box. It's going to spit out, you know, one in 10 numbers. I don't really know how to uh, I take the most likely one. I don't really know how to interpret that. Now there is like a pretty good theoretical basis for saying, hey, if the output is looking a lot like the baseline total ignorance output, then that may mean that we are really out of distribution. And that is like a case where we maybe don't want to trust the model. So you could really start to flag these kinds of things and say, you know, super low confidence on this, which, you know, you could sort of always do because, you know, they were were always giving these numbers. You could always just kind of eyeball them. But I think what this research shows in a nice way is that this pattern of, as you get out of distribution, you fall back to whatever the baseline total ignorance prediction would be, which is defined by the loss function and how it, you know, rewards different distributions in that scenario. And so you can recognize that, you can start to monitor for that, you can control that, you can alert users to that kind of stuff. Um, and you can also design for it so that you know you don't have loss functions that reward like random guessing, right? Because you can imagine a loss function that might be like, uh, if you're right, you know, then you get like high reward. And if you're wrong, you could easily reward overconfidence in your loss function and if you do that then you're going to get a model that exhibits overconfidence when it's out of distribution on the other hand you could reward a conservative guess with your loss function and if you do that then you'll get conservative behavior when you're out of distribution so it's probably most important from a system design standpoint but also i think from kind of a monitoring you know alert to users hey we're not really that sure here this looks like the model hasn't seen anything like this before Um, that's a really good thing to know and even just for efficiency's sake too right i mean if you're actually trying to do some sort of classification problem in the wild you know in, in in industry let's say then you have problems of like well when the classification is wrong how do i detect that what happens you know it'd be way better if you could detect i have low confidence in this in a way that means the model's probably never seen anything like it, I should, you know, that's that's maybe more data I need to go label, you know, if nothing else, right? Um, so I, I thought this was a pretty cool paper. It, it did not, it wasn't one of these things that I never expected that, but more of something I hadn't quite thought about it as a good systematic evaluate or, you know, uh, exploration of it, looking at these different dimensions and it seems like it gives good guidance for both the way people train and the way people deploy. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.